0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The latest corruption scandal in Washington is focusing on a senior Justice Department environmental official
1: who bought a beach house with a key figure in the Abramoff case and an oil company executive. Here you've actually got two of the chief regulators actually sharing a home with a lobbyist. So on its face, this raises obvious concerns.
0: Also the search for novel ways to turn weeds and other plants into something you can put into your gas tank.
2: Organizations are now identifying microorganisms from all kinds of environments such as termite guts and the rumen of cattle and compost heaps where microorganisms are known to exist who live on breaking down cellulose. Those stories
0: plus the final part of our interview with Nobel Peace Prize winner Wangari Mathai. That's this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Scandal continues to haunt Washington, and the latest allegations involve two top environmental regulators. Former Deputy Interior Secretary J. Stephen Griles has been under investigation in connection with the Jack Abramoff lobbying affair. Now it turns out that Mr. Griles and his girlfriend Sue Ellen Wooldrich purchased a million-dollar beach house with Donald Duncan, He's a vice president of ConocoPhillips, the nation's third largest oil company. Until last fall, Ms. Wooldrich was also the top Justice Department official for environmental enforcement. And she's now under fire for signing a consent order that would allow Conoco to delay payment of more than a half billion dollars in fines and expenses to clean up a polluting oil refinery. Joining us today to talk about these developments is Jonathan Turley. He's a law professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Hello, sir. Hello. So what's wrong with three friends going in together on a piece of real estate?
1: (laughs) Well, the problem is when the three friends include two regulators and one regulated party. For people in this city, it's the ultimate symbolism for the Bush administration. It's always been argued that they're uncomfortably close to industry. Here, you've actually got two of the chief regulators actually sharing a home with a lobbyist. So on its face, this raises obvious concerns. This is all a bit
0: complicated for people outside of Washington. Can you walk me through the details of this case?
1: Who are the officials involved in the purchase of this uh, beach house? Well, first of all, some of them are quite well known. Uh, The best known is J. Stephen Griles, who's the former deputy interior secretary, who's always been a focus of great controversy. When he was first brought into the administration, a lot of environmentalists identified him and others as people that uh, had worked for the industries that they would now regulate – There's also Don Duncan, who is the vice president of federal and international affairs for ConocoPhillips, one of the major lobbyists in Washington, as you might imagine. And then finally, there's Sue Ellen Wooldridge, who's the former assistant attorney general in charge of the environment and natural resources.
0: Tell me about this consent decree that's at the core of this controversy. Now, as I understand it, a a couple of years back, uh, ConocoPhillips had had settled with the EPA and four states.
1: But then the case was reopened? It was. Conical Phillips came back and said we would like more time. Essentially we're not going to fulfill the agreement that we made. And so the proposed Uh, changes would have delayed the need of the company to put in over a half billion dollars worth of emissions controls at refineries. And this was viewed by many as a signature move for the Bush administration, a sort of backdoor effort to help out industry avoid pollution abatement at the very time that there's all this concern about air pollution and global warming and all the other uh, questions that quietly people like Griles uh, were working to relax these types of commitments. Talk to me about the half
0: billion dollars that Conoco didn't have to spend right away. How does that compare to their profits?
1: Well, half a billion dollars will concentrate the mind of any company, even uh, this one. Uh, This is $525 million worth of abatement devices that ConocoPhillips promised it would put in to settle that case. And when essentially the bill came due, they just said, we'd prefer not to do that. Now, what was particularly strange is that these companies are having record profits. So there really wasn't any good reason for delaying this earlier agreement. What was the role of Mr. Griles
0: and Ms. Woldridge in this uh, proposed consent decree that would let DeConnico off the hook for a longer period of time?
1: Well, the most direct role was by Wooldridge, who signed uh, the proposed consent decree. And the role of Griles is yet to be determined. These are two individuals who may be more reluctant now to discuss their involvement with anything dealing with Conical Phillips? First of all, Griles is under criminal investigation linked to the Abramoff matter. Also, Wooldridge may face certain ethical questions, even ethical charges. But, and Congress is proceeding to investigate all of these matters.
0: Of what significance is it that Ms. Wooldridge here was chief of the Environmental Enforcement Division of the Justice Department?
1: Well, Really, these are the two individuals that are the soup to nuts for environmental regulation, that uh, Interior handles many of the issues that affect these corporations uh, with the EPA. They're often the boots on the ground. And the Justice Department uh, exercises the critical authority over whether to prosecute or enforce. So if you had to buy a house as a lobbyist with two people, these would be the perfect housemates.
0: How high do these decisions go in the Bush administration? Who would have had to sign off on the appointments of uh, Mr. Griles and Ms. Woldrich?
1: Well, that's really what everyone's talking about in Washington is where the trajectory of this scandal will go. Some of the most common questions being asked around coffee shops are who knew about the romantic relationship between these two individuals or possibly this uh, house deal? Who were essentially the patrons of these individuals? Uh, Who protected Griles? I mean, Griles has been radioactive for years, and yet he was kept in government. He didn't do that by himself. So what Congress is gonna be looking at is not just what occurred here and how it could happen, but who were the facilitators? Who were the protectors? Who knew about this romantic relationship Uh, and its implications. Who knew about these interventions and the involvement in this consent decree? That's really where this scandal is going. Now remember, these are two very high up individuals. There's not a lot of folks above their pay grade. So anyone above them is going to cause real problems for the Bush Administration. Just above them, you're going to start to hit cabinet officials. And just above the cabinet, you're going to hit Vice President Cheney and ultimately President Bush. Jonathan Turley is professor of public interest law at
0: George Washington University. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Living on Earth contacted the attorneys for both J. Stephen Griles and for Sue Ellen Wooldridge, but both declined comment. The Justice Department says it's reviewing the matter. Termites. They can be really bad news if you live in a wooden home, but as scientists search for solutions to the challenge of climate change, termites might emerge as the good guys, along with an unusual plant that grows like a weed. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman explains. In
4: 1997, Stephen Chu shared the Nobel Prize in physics by thinking small, using lasers to trap and cool atoms. Today, Chu is director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California. He's switched fields to molecular biology, and now he's thinking big, very big. Oh, we want to save the world. (laughs) Chu wants to save the world from global warming. And he and colleagues from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, Stanford University, and Caltech plan to do it in part with plants. Corn and sugarcane can already be converted into ethanol, which can be used in cars, but it takes a lot of energy and land to grow, harvest, and convert these foods into fuel. Chu and company have a different idea. Instead of using expensive crops, which don't give you much bang for your buck, they want to distill ethanol from agricultural wastes, things like wood chips and a fast-growing tropical grass called miscanthus. Chu calls miscanthus a miracle weed. On one experimental field, 2,500 gallons of ethanol were distilled from a single acre. That's nearly three times what you get from corn.
2: This is a weed to behold.
4: And the canthus grows to 14 feet uh, perennial crop. To chop it off the bottom, next year it's 14 feet. Pretty good stuff. And canthus does indeed need much water, fertilizer, or pesticides. And it's carbon neutral. It produces no extra greenhouse gases. Chu says it can be grown on millions of acres of fallow agricultural land. He believes making ethanol from ag waste and plants like miscanthus can replace two-thirds of the gasoline used in the United States. There's just one problem. Um, Right now, it's too expensive to convert. The materials in miscanthus that Chu wants to convert into ethanol is cellulose and lignin, the woody stuff that makes plants hard. Nature deliberately makes it difficult to break down these strong substances and turn them into starch, which can then be distilled but nature also has things that can help, things like termites. That's right, termites, the pests that can eat you out of house and home. The termites are fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, we went through Africa and we saw these huge termites. Well, these guys are working like mad. <laughs> Melvin Simon, professor emeritus at Caltech, thinks termites can help save the world because they can do what we can't. When we eat cellulose, we call it dietary fiber. It passes right through us. But when termites eat cellulose, they call it dinner. Because in the termite's gut are microorganisms that produce enzymes, chemicals that can break down the cellulose. Again, Mel Simon. You know what happens when the termite
5: is born, the little baby termite hatches, it hasn't got these enzymes. The mother regurgitates a little bit of stuff, and the baby sucks that up and gets itself inoculated with the enzymes it's going to need to make its (laughs) food.
3: Isn't that great?
4: (laughs) But it takes a lot of termites a long time to chew through a 2 by 4 says Simon. As good as the enzymes in the bug's guts are at digesting cellulose, they're too slow for industrial purposes.
6: That's the problem. But biology isn't in a hurry. Biology's got lots of time. And so this is the, the, there are some problems in speeding up the rate at which catalysts work. That's not a simple process. But
4: scientists like Mel Simon are experimenting with modifying the bacteria in termite guts to speed them up. And they've got a new genetic tool to help them find these promising microbes. Chris Somerville is a researcher from Stanford University and in Carnegie Institution.
2: Organizations are now going out into nature and identifying microorganisms from all kinds of environments such as termite guts and the rumen of cattle and forest floors and compost heaps where Microorganisms are known to exist who live on breaking down cellulose into sugars. And now they're determining the DNA sequence and analyzing the gene structure of these organisms to identify new types of enzymes that might be more efficient at this. Professor
4: Somerville is investigating how to make the cellulose in plants like miscanthus easier to break down. Somerville's work and those of his colleagues, Nobel laureates Stephen Chu and Melvin Simon, is funded by a $500 million grant from BP Oil Company. President Bush has proposed $180 million for biofuel research next year. But Somerville says it will be the profit motive, not government, that will drive new biofuel R&D.
2: But I actually believe it's going to be possible to create a biofuels industry on a very large scale, fundamentally without the government. I think the participation of the world energy companies uh, is the key ingredient
4: Chris Somerville predicts you could be putting the stuff produced from termite guts eating exotic plants into the tank of your car within 10 to 12 years. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman.
0: Coming up, the final part of our conversation with environmental activist and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Wangari Mathai. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In late August of last year, residents in neighborhoods around the capital of the Ivory Coast, Abidjan, woke up feeling nauseous and gasping for breath. Some were also vomiting and bleeding from their noses. Within a few days, at least 10 people had died. The actual number is unclear, and an estimated 75,000 had sought medical help. The cause? Hundreds of tons of toxic waste from Europe including highly caustic chemicals that had been dumped illegally from the probo Koala, an oil tanker owned by the Dutch company Trafigura. A cleanup began almost immediately, but three company officials were jailed in September and were held until earlier this month. That's when Trafigura paid the government of the Ivory Coast about $200 million, but accepted no liability for the incident. On the line with us is law professor Philippe Sands. He directs the Center on International Courts and Tribunals at the University College London. Hello, sir.
5: Hi. Very nice to join you.
0: So this $200 million, uh, how does that compare to the health crisis that erupted in Abidjan after the stumping?
5: Well, it's difficult to give a precise uh, view on that because it seems like a very large sum of money. On the other hand, the very large uh, volumes of hazardous waste that were left behind in Abidjan, over 400 tons on some accounts obviously have been spread to a number of different sites and seem to have caused very significant health consequences so it's important to note on the terms of the agreement n- neither side uh, accepts any sort of liability uh, for the consequences so it's called in legal terms it's an ex-gratia payment and the hope of both sides is going to be that this is going to sort this out once and for
0: all How does a settlement like this factor into the terms of the Basel Convention, which prevents one country from dumping toxic waste on another country?
5: The convention seems to have been violated, and um, the convention establishes very strict rules on notification on prior agreement when hazardous waste is taken from one country to another country. Um, And here, obviously, something went seriously wrong. But looking on the bright side, it's pretty clear that if the Basel Convention hadn't been in place, uh, there would not have been a settlement of this kind. Now, that is not to say the rules under the Basel Convention are adequate. And there's been a a call as a result of this incident and other incidents uh, for the tightening up of the rules to make them
0: even stricter. Cote d'Ivoire is a divided country right now, uh, at war with itself. Uh, How well do you think the government's going to be able to handle these funds?
5: Well, that's a big question. I mean, how well is any government able to handle the uh, uh, the sharing of large funds in in natural or other types of disasters such as this? I mean, you know, we've seen uh, in the United States with Katrina, there's a terrible problem of getting monies around. We've seen in the United Kingdom, my own country, situations where... bombings have happened in London and questions come up of compensation and who gets what. These are very difficult issues. And I think for a government like the Côte d'Ivoire, which finds itself, as you say, deeply divided at the moment, uh, within its government as well, there are going to be huge pressures to divert some of the funds elsewhere, to use them for particular ways. In the Côte d'Ivoire, as for any country, $200 million is a pretty large sum of money. And it will be very important to make sure Firstly, that the money goes where it should go, and secondly, that the costs of administering that fund don't eat up uh, a significant chunk to avoid them going where they ought to go.
0: How much of a deterrent is this settlement uh, for another company that might be thinking about it? Uh,
5: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, It's an important question. I mean, Trafigura must have taken the view that paying $198 million uh, or thereabouts was a price worth paying to get rid of this issue. Um, What what that means for other companies uh, is not clear, but it will certainly concentrate companies' minds uh, that if they violate the rules, If they're caught and if they're subject to claims such as this, uh, they're not going to get away scot-free. Others will say that this was a relatively small sum of money, uh, given what its liabilities could have been under various circumstances. court proceedings, and that may yet turn out to be the case. But for the time being, uh, I think that companies that are thinking of transporting waste around the world will think a little bit more carefully about uh, evading their responsibilities under international conventions, um, and $200 million is $200 million.
0: I understand that eventually this material was taken to France, where it was disposed of properly. Why didn't it stay in Europe to begin with?
5: Well, that is a very powerful question. There is an emerging principle of international law called the principle of proximity. And the principle of proximity says hazardous material should be disposed of in the place uh, in which it is produced. Um, And on that principle, uh, it ought to have been disposed of where it was generated in the first place.
0: Philippe Sands is a law professor and director of the Centre on International Courts and Tribunals at University College in London. Thank you so much, sir.
5: Delighted to join you.
0: We're online at LOE.org, where you can hear the program anytime. And we're always eager to hear your thoughts. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Or call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. We return now to a much happier story from Africa, that of environmental and human rights activist Wangari Mathai. Professor Mathai has written a memoir recounting her rise from life as a village girl in the countryside of Kenya to a celebrated Green Leader and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. The book is called Unbowed. Last week, we spoke with her about her education and her early activism. We continue the conversation this week, beginning with the tale she tells in her book about a fig tree near her childhood home.
7: Well, the story of the fig tree is a very interesting story because when I was growing up, I was like all the other girl children of my age. I would collect firewood. I would fetch water from the nearby stream. And I remember that my mother told me not to collect firewood from the fig tree. And I asked her, why? And she said, because that tree is a tree of God. We don't burn it, we don't cut it, we don't use it for building. We let them stand for as long as they are able to. And I didn't think about it until much, much later when I became uh, more conscious about the role of trees in the environment. And then I appreciated the wisdom of our people in not cutting some of these trees, treating them as if they were sacred and it was much later that I realized that these trees were very important for the stabilization of the land, stabilizing the soil, making sure that you don't have landslides, and also making sure that a lot of the water that is in the ground is brought up from the underground, from the belly of the earth, along the roots of these trees. So they were very, very important in the ecological system.
0: And when you went back uh, as an adult in your later years, uh, what had happened to that tree?
7: Unfortunately, when we introduced cash crops, coffee, tea, sugar canes, it w- the tree was considered useless. It was no longer a holy tree because people were now Christians. And so it was cut to make way for tea bushes. Fortunately, nothing has ever grown in the particular site where that tree was. It is as if only a fig tree was supposed to be there.
0: And what happened to the water? The, you said that the, the roots of the tree would bring up water. What happened to the water that was there?
7: Very close to the fig tree, there was this little stream, and I mention in the book that I used to play uh, with frog eggs, and with tadpoles in this stream. And this is the stream from which I would fetch water for my mother. But when this tree was cut, that stream also dried up. We, we often take these trees, we often take the ecosystem for granted, partly because we don't understand how they are linked with each other and how together they create a harmony that makes life possible.
0: I'd like to talk to you directly about your memoir for a moment, which came out uh, not so long ago. And it is fittingly called? Unbound. And can you tell me about the title?
7: We were trying to reflect the fact that even though we have gone through such a difficult life and we have gone through so many trials and tribulations, we continue to walk tall and proud, unbound.
0: Yeah, I, I think one of the most amazing things about the story you wrote about yourself and the Greenbelt Movement is that you didn't stop with teaching people about basic tree science or ecology, or you just went—you went so deep. You addressed some of the matters of the heart and soul that can keep a people down. And and in your book, you describe how when missionaries came to Kenya, they changed not only people's religion, but but the manner of dress, names, the the music, the days on the calendar, even the very meaning of your tribe, uh, Kikuyu and, 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 and others. I mean, Kikuyu came to mean primitive.
7: Well, that is the tragedy of any people who are colonized. Those who colonized had come to convince people that they are backward, that they don't have anything worth saving, that they need to emulate the lifestyle and the faith of those who have colonized them. And because those who colonized were often, you know, they had advanced technology. They came uh, by ship, by, by horses, by trains, And so the natives were completely overwhelmed by the technology and the knowledge that the the newcomers seemed to have. And so in in that process, the colonizers, as I say, had perfected a system that was extremely powerful, and especially the region, because when you tell people about a god, a god you never see, a god you can never ask questions, you can never go to god and say, god... Are these people telling me the truth, or are they manipulating me so that I am vulnerable? You can't ask God those questions. Um, So it's a very, very powerful way of controlling people so that you can access and um, exploit their resources.
0: At one point you write that the, uh, and I'm quoting here, the trauma of the colonized is rarely examined. Steps are rarely taken to understand and redress it. Instead, the psychological damage passes from one generation to the next until victims recognize their dilemma and work to liberate themselves from the trauma. How do you see that psychological damage from the years of colonization under the British uh, still present today?
7: Well, it is everywhere. You see it everywhere. You see it in in the way people are disempowered, in the way that people don't believe in themselves in the way that people believe that uh, they are less than those who colonized them. And it it is made worse by the fact that those who became the new rulers, who are natives, even they have that indoctrination. They literally continued to govern in the same way that the masters were governing. And that is, has been part of the problem Of Africa. We need to decolonize the minds of people who have been colonized. Until you decolonize those minds, it's very, very difficult for the colonized to liberate themselves from the burden of self-doubt, the burden of self, um, sometimes even self-hatred that they have. And and the tragedy is, They don't know that that's what has happened to them because quite often what has happened to them is projected as progress. It is projected as development.
0: I know one area where you've been raising awareness uh, is the importance of the vast tropical rainforest uh, in Africa's Congo Basin, uh, which is so much less known than uh, the Amazon rainforest. How's that going?
7: That's going very well, and I'm um, very, very happy that uh, the climate change discussion is uh, gaining momentum, and people are recognizing that one of the ways in which we can uh, help the planet is by planting trees, but also by protecting the trees that are standing. So I hope that governments that have money will help the African governments, so that they can protect that forest from logging. Because it's also important to say that the logging is not being done by local people. The logging of these forests is usually done by big timber companies from developed countries. So considering that it is the developed countries that have contributed so much to the greenhouse gases that are causing the warming up of the earth, it is only appropriate that they too should participate in assisting governments, not only to stop the logging, but to help with the rehabilitation of the logged areas.
0: I want to mention something personal to you. Um, I live in New Hampshire, and it's an old, old house. It's 250 years old. And um, there's a sugar maple. There's a bunch of sugar maples that were planted probably not long after the house was built. And one of them has has run out of time. Um, It's probably 175 years old. The wires that have been holding it together and the other efforts that have been made to keep it going, just nothing more can be done. And it has to come down. In fact, I think it's going to come down
7: tomorrow. I'm so sorry to hear that. But it also means that uh, we understand that all living things come to an end. And the only thing we can say is that after so many years of service, that tree is ready to be recycled. How wonderful it would be if all of us would be recycled when our time comes and we would be able to say, like that tree, I have done my part.
0: Professor Mathai, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And I want to give you the opportunity to say anything else that you'd like to say.
7: What I would just like to remind uh, our listeners, that recently in Nairobi, we launched a billion tree campaign. We are appealing to all the people in the world, throughout in the throughout the world, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you can plant a tree. There are six billion of us. If at least one out of six planted a tree, we would very easily reach our target. It is not as if we shall solve all the crisis of the climate with those billion trees, but at least it's one way of doing something to contribute towards solving the problem. Let us be part of the solution and not part of the problem.
0: Wangari Mathai, winner of the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize, thank you so much.
7: Thank you very much.
0: Wangari Mathai is Kenya's Deputy Minister of the Environment and founder of the Greenbelt Movement. Her new memoir is called Unbowed. You can hear the first part of our conversation with Wangari Mathai, as well as a one-hour documentary about her life at our website, loe.org. You can also find information there about her campaign to plant one billion trees. The only thing is, you have to help. I'm already on the hook to replace my big old maple tree that has to come down.
8: Fool my girl.
6: i okay. okay.
0: Just ahead, some good news, kinda, about the bird flu. There's a vaccine for humans, but it only works about half the time, and there's not enough for everyone. Keep listening to Living on Earth.
3: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from you, our listeners. And from member stations. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With the exception of the recent culling of a turkey flock in the U.K., the H5N1 bird flu has stayed mostly out of the news since a flurry of concern more than a year ago. About 200 people have died from the disease, mostly from direct contact with infected birds. But so far there has been no sign of the pandemic that is expected if the H5N1 flu were to mutate into a form that can be easily transmitted among humans. For a checkup on the bird flu, we turn now to Dr. Anthony Fauci. He runs the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Fauci. Thank you. It's good to be here. So when we last checked in with you in March of 2005, uh, there was quite a bit of activity and discussion about the avian bird flu and migrating into humans. And then things have been pretty quiet. Although just recently, uh, there's a bit more news. Um, So where are we now on the threat of this possible pandemic?
8: Well, the threat really has remained about the same, has not gotten worse nor better. It is still this smoldering activity of not being able to eliminate The infection of H5N1 among bird flocks. And it continues to smolder in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, you know, and then most recently in the turkey farm in the UK. And as long as there are chickens that are infected and sick and dying, there's always the possibility of it, as we say, jumping species from the chicken or the turkey to the human. That has not occurred in the UK but in other parts of the world like in Southeast Asia there have been a steady trickling in of cases now when we last spoke uh, you were in the midst
0: of a vaccine project here in the United States what's currently happening with that
8: well it, well is it was successful in in many respects in that the H5N1 Vietnamese strain that was being tested has shown to be predictive of being protective that was the good news the sobering news is that the dose that was required to get to that level of immunity was prohibitively High, And the protective immunity was only seen in about 50% of the people. Since that time, and since we last spoke, there's been a considerable amount of work done on the use of vaccines together with adjuvants. And an adjuvant is a compound if when given with the vaccine amplifies, expands, and heightens the immune response. And we needed that because we needed to get away with a much lower dose to induce a protective response. So I think that's going to be very helpful if and when we come to the point of needing to make large amounts of vaccine. Do, do we have one today? Well, you know, we, we have it. We don't have enough to be, have any meaningful impact if, in fact, we are confronted with a real pandemic influenza among humans. But actually having a vaccine in hand is not is not anything major there, it's getting enough doses. That can be distributed in case we do in fact have a human pandemic. So where are we in the vaccine process? Well, in the vaccine process, there are a number of things that are going on in parallel. The classic way that we traditionally get a vaccine for influenza is to grow it in eggs to get the product, either the whole virus that you then kill and use as a vaccine, or you break up the virus and you use its components. There are a number of companies that are taking that approach. In parallel with that are a number of organizations, researchers, and companies which are using the more modern vaccine techniques of what we call recombinant DNA technology. In other words, you don't have to deal with the entire virus itself. You can use the molecular genetic capability of making just the components of the virus that are important for the vaccine. One such trial was actually just started uh, in an early phase just a couple of weeks ago.
0: We hear that Tamiflu isn't particularly effective anymore against uh, the, uh, the bird flu. Um, how true is that?
8: Uh, well, it, it depends what you mean by particularly effective against the bird flu. Uh, if you're talking about resistance of the virus to the Tamiflu effect, that still most of the isolates that we get right now are actually sensitive to Tamiflu. However, there's a broader point with Tamiflu and other existing antivirals. And that is the original conditions for which it was approved by the FDA was that if given within the first 24 to 48 hours, Tamiflu can diminish the duration of symptoms by about one and a half days. We have no idea how well Tamiflu will perform if given to people who are desperately ill with a pandemic flu. How worried are
0: you now about uh, uh, an avian flu pandemic among humans?
8: Well, I think that a, a pandemic is going to occur sometime in the future. We've had three of them of varying degrees of severity in the 20th century. It is highly likely that within a reasonable time in the 21st century, we'll have one. Whether that's going to be the currently circulating H5N1, we have no idea that we do know that pandemics do occur. So if there's anything positive going on right now, I think it's focusing our attention in a wake-up call that a pandemic is a possibility. It may not occur with this virus. It may not occur this year or next year or the year after. But eventually, we need to be prepared for a pandemic flu. You need to prepare for the worst.
0: Anthony Fauci is director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Thank you so much, sir. You're quite welcome. Good to be here. Scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research tell us that the western part of the United States is feeling the effects of climate change more than the east right now. And certainly one part of the west where changes are becoming more tangible is the state of Arizona. As Sadie Babbitts reports, researchers are looking at the region's archaeological past to help understand the new present and the likely future.
9: Ken Cole's eyes twinkle when he talks about ancient trash heaps. He's a research ecologist, and he studies middens, centuries-old stashes left behind by desert pack rats. Cole holds one in his hand that's more than 2,000 years old.
10: This fossil here is from Whitmore Wash. This is a place 100 kilometers upriver from Lake Mead, and this is one of the ways that we're studying how plants react to climate change.
9: This midden is a treasure trove of desert ecology, a nest of seeds, twigs, leaves, even feces, all glued together by viscous, thousand-year-old rat urine.
10: If this is under a ledge where it doesn't get any rainfall falling on it, then it's just going to stay there forever. And the plant bits are not going to decompose, because while they're encased in this crystallized rat urine, they're essentially mummified.
9: Cole analyzes his samples here, at the USGS Southwest Biological Science Center in Flagstaff. Some of the middens date back to the end of the last glacial period. Scientists know that at that time, plants and animals were on the move.
10: If you get the climate warming suddenly, like it did 11,600 years ago, plants will adjust very rapidly when moving uphill, say to a mountain top, but more slowly when moving northward a long distance.
9: During that last warming period, the junipers, the scrubby plant down in the Grand Canyon, died off. Young juniper plants migrated up to the rim of the canyon in search of the cooler temperatures they favor. Researchers observe something similar happening today in northern Arizona. Biologist Neil Cobb drives his Toyota truck up a snow-covered mountain road. Cobb loves this land, this living laboratory. He leads the Miriam Powell Center for Environmental Research in Flagstaff. As part of his work, he's been cataloging dead pinion pines up here. It's earned him the nickname, Dr. Death.
6: I came here in 85. Um, You'd be very hard-pressed to find a dead pinion or juniper anywhere. And then 2002 hit, and we just had spectacular mortality, at least with uh, pinion.
9: In 2002, Arizona was six years into a severe drought that continues today. Then, bark beetles multiplied in the drought-stressed trees, finishing the pinions off. Hi, George. Today, what was a closed woodland has turned to open scrubby juniper.
6: And you can see we're actually walking through it now, so, Every Almost every live tree you see um, are junipers. All of the carcasses um, are pinions. It used to be a more 50-50 or 60% pinion, 40% juniper. Um, and now it's almost pretty much 100% juniper.
9: Cobb, who has asthma, brushes past live junipers, stepping over some downed trees. Some critters have had a field day with all this death. As the trees died, they filled with insects, and the dead trunks are peppered with woodpecker holes. But mice and birds that used to feed on the pine nuts here must have gone somewhere else for food.
6: What will happen to these communities underneath these dead trees? Will invasive species come in? If something like cheatgrass moves in underneath these trees and then alters the fire regime so that we get a lot more fires, that could really um, well, permanently affect the ecosystem.
9: Cheatgrass isn't here yet. Drought has so far kept this western scourge at bay, but pinyon shows no signs of return yet.
6: As an ecologist, it's exciting to see change like this. It's very humbling to see something so drastically happen over a very short period of time.
9: Back in the office, research ecologist Ken Cole's climate models show Arizona's signature pinyon trees will vanish from the state within this century. Cole says they'll take root instead in northern New Mexico and Colorado.
10: Most of the major plant species, I think, like a pinyon pine that has a very wide distribution, or creosote bush that has a very wide distribution, uh, I think they they are very adaptable to different climates. They're they're spread in a wide variety of places. I I don't think they'll have any problem. It's the, the more rare species.
9: Like the famed Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park over the border in California, Cole predicts these trees will migrate out of the park that bears their name, That's the future, the present is fire. Last year was the most severe in a series of intense fire years. Nine million acres burned throughout the country, including Arizona. Air tankers are more and more a common sound. They fly at all hours of the day, sometimes days at a time. If you're lucky, from a distance, you watch them drop bright orange-red fire retardant. Less lucky, and you see the flames or feel engulfed in the smell of burning wood and falling ash.
0: We've always had big fires.
9: George Wertner is an ecologist and editor of a new book on wildfire.
0: But one of the things that global warming is doing is increasing or exaggerating those, some of those conditions. In other words, uh, warming prolongs the drying season, keeps the humidity lower. Warming, in a lot of cases, extends drought, and then you'll also tend to get an increase in the velocity of winds. So all the conditions that make for big fires are increased by global warming.
9: The National Interagency Fire Center says the country's fire season is now year-round. And in Arizona, that fire season is partly fueled by drought. Arizona's drought has dropped reservoir levels at Lake Powell, which provides water and power to people throughout the southwest. Bruce Hungate directs the Western Regional Center of the National Institute of Climatic Change Research.
10: We can't say with any certainty that this specific drought is due to more CO2 in the atmosphere, but what we can say is, um, this is a really extreme drought. It's consistent with what the types of responses in the climate system that we ought to expect from climate change.
9: The desert Southwest may have been settled during an uncharacteristically wet period, giving Westerners a false impression of what's normal. Climate change may magnify this harsh reality, and that worries biologist Neil Cobb.
6: If the drought continues and temperatures increase and they exacerbate that drought, it looks bleak for a lot of of ecosystems. And the only thing I can see really changing that is increased precipitation.
9: And that's where climate models don't help much yet. Ken Cole explains there's no consensus on how much rain the desert sky will yield in future years.
10: Some of the models would suggest that this drought may be a permanent feature of our new climate. Other models don't really see that happening. They see perhaps an increase in summer rainfall, uh, some even an increase in winter rainfall. But regardless of what the rainfall is doing, Most of the models, or all of the models, show significant increases in temperature.
9: Increase in temperature. That's a sobering prospect in Arizona, especially in Phoenix, the nation's sixth largest city, which already bakes at over 100 degrees every afternoon, all summer long. For Living on Earth, I'm Sadie Babbitts in Flagstaff.
0: Climate change has been a key topic for living on Earth over the past 15 years. And I'm pleased to report that our special series on the early signs of climate change around the world is sharing this year's prestigious George Polk Award for radio journalism. Our six stories from around the world were produced together with the University of California at Berkeley, Graduate School of Journalism, Salon.com, and American Public Media. 11 UC Berkeley graduate students traveled to the shores of Lake Tanganyika, to the crowded delta of Bangladesh, the snowy slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, and to the Andes, to bring back tales like this one of the real-life miseries and perils already caused by global warming. Global warming is not the fault of third world countries. We're dancing at a party we didn't even want to attend. But we're beginning to change our habits anyways, and we'll have to keep doing that. If we don't, climate change will grab hold of us and will disappear. A special thanks and congratulations to those student reporters and also to Sandy Tolan, longtime Living on Earth contributor and UC journalism professor who conceived the idea. And a big tip of the hat to Living on Earth's Chris Ballman, Dennis Foley, and especially Ingrid Lobet, who did the lion's share of the editing with my assistance. Living on Earth is proud to be in fine company with 11 other news teams that won the Polk this year, including High Country News for political reporting and the Los Angeles Times for environmental reporting. You can find links to the works of all the winners on our website, loe.org, and also an interview with Ken Weiss, co author of the LA Times series on Our Altered Oceans. That's www.loe.org. Next week on Living on Earth, a landmark building from New England's industrial revolution has lain fallow for years. Now a developer is reviving it for a new time using clean and renewable geothermal energy. We decided if we're going to bring this building
2: back, let's bring it back in a way that minimizes the impact on the environment, and let's respond to the people who are coming here to buy condos.
3: These are people who grew up in the 60s and 70s who want to live their
0: ideals bread, roses, and geothermal energy next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week back in East Africa, home of Mount Kilimanjaro and Wangari-Mathai. In the pre-dawn hours, colobus monkeys are beginning to wake from their slumber in the trees of the Kakamega Forest in Kenya. The troops' vocalizations echo across the jungle canopy as they regroup and start their search for breakfast. These contact calls were recorded by Douglas Quinn. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Baskin, Kelly Cronin, and Jeff Turton. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Viggen. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. 800-225-7676.
0: PRI Public Radio International.